0: That's, that's the first thing that people learn with adventure racing. It's like the first time you see someone walk through a creek instead of finding the bridge to get over it, right? And you're like, oh, wait, I can do that. And as soon as that clicks in their head, they become a different person with adventure racing because now it becomes, how fast can I go? What's the ways I can find?
1: Welcome to the Dark Zone, an adventure racing podcast. This is your host, Brian Gatons. In adventure racing lingo, a dark zone is a time when, due to darkness or safety, teams are paused on the course before continuing with the race. During that time, stories are exchanged, friendships are kindled, spirits are restored, and teams have a chance to prepare for the next challenge. We hope that you make good use of this dark zone. We're glad that you're here. Welcome back, dear listener, to another episode of the Dark Zone, and adventure racing podcast. Today we are joined by Alan Wagner of Broad Run Off-Road. Alan has been organizing very successful, very popular adventure races in the Virginia area, specifically geared towards the newer racer. Um, Alan, a racer himself, has great thoughts to share about how to get into the sport, how to build great experiences, and good feedback for other race directors. So thank you, Alan, for coming onto the show. Before we get into the episode, I want to thank Rootstock Racing's The Endless Mountains AR for being this episode's sponsor. www.endlessmountainsar.com. Um, A five-day adventure race uh, returning for its second version, June 2023. Uh, We encourage everybody to check out the website. Once again, www.EndlessMountainsAR.com. A fun experience. And for those of you on the east coast of the U.S., a big, long, wonderful five-day race right in your backyard. So be sure to come out and join EndlessMountainsAR.com and Rootstock Racing. You'll have a great time. Um, Thank you for being a listener to The Dark Zone. We will continue to remain free for all of our audience. We're delighted to have you here. Um, Hope your racing is going well. The calendar has turned to September, and it's time to think about fall races and winter training. So we look forward to seeing you out there. Be safe and enjoy this episode. So, welcome to the Dark Zone and Adventure Racing Podcast. This is Brian Gating, your host. We're joined today by Alan Wagner of Broad Run Off-Road Racing, and they'll talk a bit more about their name in a second. Mm-hmm. Alan is the race director uh, for that organization. Um, he reached out to the Dark Zone, reached out to me for the purpose of talking about the, the the races that were not quite as long. Admittedly, the Dark Zone, we get pulled into the big races, 24, 36 hours, five-day races, but Alan did me a favor by reminding me that there are other types of races out there. He's had tremendous success, and I invited him on The Dark Zone to talk a bit about his races, the clientele he's seeing, the growth he's seeing in the sport. So, Alan, thanks for coming to The Dark Zone. We're glad that you're here. Tell us about Broad Run.
0: Yeah, so broad Run off road. We started in 2013. Around that time, it's just me and a group of friends who happen to live in a neighborhood together. Um, we actually live in a neighborhood that's surrounded by a nature preserve, uniquely, um, and we they they were actually turning it into a nature preserve as we were kind of all moving into the neighborhood. And I. I started using it for running. It was actually as they were building the trails, using that for my workouts and reached out to the nature preserve manager and asked basically, hey, can we put on a race on the trails? They thought it was a great idea. So that was the actual founding of Broad Run Off-Road. So, so we started- Broad Run is a place. Yeah, so Broad, so Broad Run is a stream um, that runs through the area. If you're familiar with uh, this area in Virginia, you often hear of Bull, the Battle of Bull Run. Bull Run is a waterway that comes through. Broad Run is a, about uh, ten miles west of that. So Broad Run is a stream that actually runs right next to the nature preserve where we were putting on the trail races. And since we were exclusively doing trail races, that's that's the off-road part of it. Uh, our our big thing when we started for those first five six years is we did do a couple races in other locations, but we strictly stayed off pavement. Um, we weren't doing any closing down of roads or anything like that. We just wanted to do trail races. So that was the broad runoff road. And we we kind of had the same thing from the beginning, which was we all have day jobs. We don't need to do this. This is all a hobby for us. So from the very first event we did, we just said, hey, whatever money we end up making from these events, we're just going to donate them to charity. So what we do for every race we put on, we pick a different local charity. So we've worked with the local Wounded Warriors retreat that's out here. We've worked with Girl Scout troops, uh, school PTOs, uh, you know, friends of homeless animals, all kinds of different orgs. Every time we do a race, we just pick a different org somewhere where it'll make a difference, you know, something local because we're not raising tons of money. We're raising like a thousand dollars to five thousand dollars now, you know, but, but but that's like a really nice thing out. for
1: you and your friends to do is that you you, you see this need. So you're, you're in your house one day, you're hanging out minding your own business. You say, Hey, wait a minute. There's this gorgeous chunk of land next to us. Let's start putting races on in there. And here we are.
0: That's pr- that was pretty much the <laughs> genesis of it. And I know I,
1: I know I drove most of it and kind of pulled all the friends
0: into it, uh, but they came and, and helped us do it. And it's crazy because it originally started as let's try and do a group run. Uh, the original intent was not to do registration and bibs and all that stuff. We were just like, let's get a group run together. We posted it on like a neighborhood Facebook group. We ended up having like a hundred people that first year. And then the first thing that everybody told us was, you should make this a real race with registration and timing and all that. So we did that the next so year. It's like super and-
1: so super organic. And you work- weren't involved in those activities beforehand that was just something no. you just so so your day jobs you're not involved in athletics activities race directing you're you're a regular guy like the rest of us and you just organically exactly. just created the series
0: that's great yeah exactly not not involved in sports whatsoever uh i mean obviously you played sports and stuff like that growing up but yeah my my day job is completely elsewhere uh doing business operation top logistics type stuff. And then even before that, I worked for an orchestra doing their operations, you know, so like completely different worlds, but event management was kind of in the background. So taking on doing event logistics kind of came natural to me and trying to plan all that stuff out, trying to figure out which routes work, you know, and making sure I get the exact distance I need to put on a 5k. So all that kind of
1: stuff was a lot of fun for us to do. And so, you, so you, you literally from the ground up, like you put a group run on, 100 people showed up. Were you surprised at the 100 eventually? Did you have any <laughs> idea who was coming?
0: Um, the 100 not only surprised me, but within two or three years, I think the biggest year, we had like 450 people. Um, to the extent that like we were reaching capacity of
1: how many we could fit on the trails. And we're like, okay, this is now almost getting out of hand. <laughs> how do we control it? Right. But that's great, though. I mean, it must have been very endearing for you. Nothing's nicer than taking an idea that's in your head. Talking to your friends about it, doing some research, and all of a sudden you look up and, and you're you're a sellout. Yeah, you know a sellout in a good way, not in a bad yes. way. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I know what you mean. <laughs> and so then, so so that's a pretty common. Now, let's talk adventure racing a bit. Have you ever been involved? Like, how did adventure racing come into the mix? Because it sounds like these were just linear point to point trail runs where you would put down. Is it baking powder you put on the trail to kind of show it and you put flags down and arrows and things like that? It's it's flags and arrows on the
0: course. I mean, that's the most typical thing we do for trail races. Of course, people miss their turns and they get lost. And then we have to worry about having people out there. But And they get cranky what, when they get lost, right? Oh yeah, ex- yeah, exactly. They're, they're all, it's always my fault that they got lost and missed their sign. <laughs> right. Always, always, but
1: the but, the, but other, the, fuck- the other 440 people did fine but it's your fault that one missed, right? (laughs) Okay.
0: Exactly. But the funny thing is my introduction to adventure racing came completely by accident. Um, through doing the trail race, um, my wife and I started having a family and one year we already had registration open for the race. And it turns out that we found out my wife was pregnant and then it turns out that the the baby was due on race day. Okay. And the issue was, well, I don't want to cancel the race because everybody's going to be mad. And we had already promised to one of these nonprofits that we were going to raise money for them. So I had been doing, like I participate in races and I had done a couple trail races and mountain bike races with adventure enablers. I had yes. no idea anything about adventure racing, but I was just like, okay, these guys really have their stuff together. They seem really nice. So I actually reached out to Mark and Margot Harris just to say, Hey, can you come help do this trail race for me? Like, I'll pay you guys to do the timing. And in case, you know, in case of emergency, I get called to the hospital because the baby's on the way. You guys just run the race in my absence. I'll be there if I can. And that's how my relationship with Mark and Margot started. And through that, I think I was talking to Margot once after the race and she was like, you know, I really think you would like adventure racing. And I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. So she kind of gave me a quick overview of it. And from there, uh, the next year I signed up for my first in- adventure race and it, I don't even know if it was a full board adventure race from what people think of today. Um, it was the Shenandoah Aquablaze. Um, they used to put on, everybody knows Shenandoah Epic now is the 24-hour you know, race that they do now. But at this time, actually, this particular year, it was 2019, they weren't even doing the Epic. They were doing what was known as the Shenandoah Tough, which I think right. was an eight-hour. Yep. And they were also doing the Aqua Blaze, which, again, I still didn't fully understand adventure racing at the time, but it was like a, it was almost point to point in that they gave you a map with the checkpoints, but it literally told you how to get there. They were like, take this trail for half a mile, then take a right. And so we did that event, um, and we had a lot of fun, but I, I think what clicked for me is we realized that the Shenandoah Tough was going on, and as we're walking on the trails, we saw a bunch of teams running down the ravine and down
1: into the ditches. And we're like, "What are those guys doing?" Like, we didn't get it. Like, we were so right. confused. And that happens so, sometime during races. Like, wrench racers come popping out of the woods, and yeah. people are like, "Where?" Are you? And then they, run, they look like Martians. And they run and they just run off the trail, going right back into the woods. See, so, so you were that yeah. person. You saw that happen. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. So I mean I did I didn't get it when I did the Aqua
0: Blaze. And I, I still feel like that probably wasn't really my first adventure race because there wasn't really any navigation to it because it really kind of laid it out. But I loved the idea of mixing paddling and biking and walking and all of those different things. So the first thing I did is I obviously just went on went on the internet and just searched for other adventure races and found uh ex2 adventures here in Virginia put on a race called the Greenhorn, mm-hmm. uh, which I believe was a four or five hour. Um the two friends who who did Aquablaze with me, they were just like one and done. They were like, okay, that was fun, but we're not, we don't want to do any yeah, more yeah, of This that. has been great, but we're going on to <laughs> yeah. something else now. So, so I did, I did the Greenhorn solo. Um, and that's when I not only fell in love with adventure racing, but figured out that I'm kind of good at it, or at least okay. I'm decent at it. Um, I ended up out of, I think he had like 70 people in that race. I ended up being like top 10 and okay. top, you know, the solo male division was like super competitive for that one. But so what was the big strength there? Was it the navigation? Was it your overall fit? Like what really helped you in that race? For me, it ends ends up being navigation, which was interesting because I'd never really done orienteering before that. Um, So I wasn't getting lost. I had found every single checkpoint exactly where I thought it was. And it, it, it almost to a fault where I didn't understand navigating yet because it just seemed like Oh, of course it's there. That's Mm -hmm. where it's supposed to be, you know? And like, I'm navigating point to point. Mm -hmm. The funny story is I also tried to take shortcuts in that race. Um, and, and I don't mean just shortcuts through the woods, but I, I like knew that other people knew the area. Um, and I could tell they did because they were like, oh yeah, that trails over here and that trails over here. So I'm like, okay, I'm just going to follow them. Right. So, At the beginning of the race I started on the bike leg and we must have been like 7 miles in and there came a point where I lost them and then uh, it was like my first oh no moment because I was like oh, I've been following these guys and I haven't really been keeping up with the map how do I get out of this <laughs> so right. and then you got to figure it, it like, out yeah and it was my first introduction to to that then it was like real navigating from there and i'm just it became a lot of fun cuz like i'm not I'm not an ultra marathoner. I'm not a person who did a ton of Like I sprint triathlon is the longest triathlon I've done. And okay. I, I do that, you know, for fun and the same thing with running and all that stuff. Like I'm, I'm good, but I'm not great. Right. Like you're never going to, if I do a mountain bike race, I will be mid pack. If I do a you're running, a race, I will be mid pack, right. but navigating, it turned out kind of just was something that clicked for me and I really got it. And I love the idea of navigating with a compass too. Like all of that just clicked for me. So I did that greenhorn race and I was just hooked. So since then, and that was like early 2019, I've basically just been trying to find teammates, you know, the same thing that everybody else is doing. And I'm just like, okay, great. I want to find teammates. So I've been doing a lot of convincing people to do races with me, doing more and more races at the same time, working up you know, the distance. So I went from four, then did eight, then did 12, then 15, 24. So now I've got 24 is the longest I've done, but I've got a few of them under my belt now. Um, but all of that was just kind of more like my personal time for broad run off-road. We didn't really dabble in adventure racing until COVID happened. Um, the year of COVID, we were gonna put on our first like extensive trail series. It was gonna be multiple locations. We had all the permits set for it, and then, of course COVID happens and we ended up having to cancel the whole thing. So we had a whole year off to just like think about what we wanted to do. And I pitched the idea to my friends. I was like, you know, I'd really love to put on an adventure race. And Mm -hmm. more specifically, I really wanted to put on a beginner adventure race because I felt the same thing I was feeling in trying to get my friends to come race with me is and, and I think a lot of, you know, your listeners would probably agree with this is that when you introduce the idea of adventure racing to a lot of people, they just freak out. Cause you're like, okay, it's going to be an eight hour race or it's right. going to be a 12 hour race. And they're just like, what? That sounds nuts. You know, because even, you know, a marathon, even if you walk a marathon, most people can walk a marathon in like four or five hours. Right. So right. the idea of racing for eight hours scares the heck out of a lot of people. So it's great that we have a lot of these longer single day races, but I was like, really need something more introductory. So when I pitched this to my friends, I was like, I really love to put on just like a four hour, five hour race, but just the four hour, five hour race. I don't want it to be a four hour that's part of a 12 hour. That's also going right. on. Like I, I just want to dedicate to a
1: four or five hour race. And so to do and- that, to offer a, to offer an adventure racing inside that timeframe, clearly four hours goes pretty quickly in a race. And so I'm assuming your checkpoint placing is, is pretty important.
0: Yeah, it was super important. And especially in the particular place where we got our first permit, um, which is a place called Silver Lake uh, here in Northern Virginia. Silver Lake itself is not large enough for an adventure race. It's large enough maybe to do like an orienteering club meet or something like that. And the lake the lake is maybe 25 acres. It's not right, you can not go massive. from end to end. You can go right. from end to end in like 20
1: minutes. It's not anything. Gotcha. So, you can send on one shore and see the checkpoint on the other shoreline. One of those lakes. Is, is
0: exactly yes. what was happening. Yeah, <laughs> right. I think I know where we're going. <laughs> yeah. So so I had to logistically figure some things out. So I had pinged some of the other race directors in the area to kind of figure some things out and figured out well on the lake, um if I used mark and I did electronic timing instead of paper passports, I could require them to go in order so what I did is I Got basically it. put six or seven checkpoints and they kind of made a star shape around the lake. So I was like, OK, great. That
1: actually gives us like 40 minutes of paddling on the water, you know. And that's, a, that's orient- a pretty original solution. So so you prevented the conga line, right? You prevented yeah. a, a herd running because I, I would argue I would wonder, I should say, that the part of the challenge of running a, a small time frame race with a large crowd is how do you disperse everybody? Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And the other thing
0: we did to kind of help with that and and COVID kind of assisted with that is there are requirements at this time. I don't know if everybody remembers, there were requirements on like how many people could be at a public gathering. Right. Right. And the park was like, we're okay once they're on the course, but how do we stop them from being all together? And we said, okay, well, we're going to divide the field into thirds. One third is going to start on the paddle. One third is going to start on the track. One third is going to start on the bike. Yeah. So we'll all start in the same location, but then they'll go their separate ways. So even again, that kind of helped with the whole. Conga line, kind of, gotcha. going gotcha. on. And at that point, there's um, so many people running
1: in so many different directions that you really don't know who you're following anymore, right? So exactly. it helps to do it that way. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And how, and and, we, and how big? How many numbers? Do, how big are your crowds for that? Well, for and games? that was
0: the that was the crazy thing is because of COVID, we were limited to 200 um, was what they said. And when we originally did the race, we we're like, we'll be happy if we get 100. We not only got 200, we sold out. I want to say three months before the yeah, race. People were hungry to get outside. And, and, and it was also, it was right after, you know, World's Toughest Race Eco Challenge Fiji came on Prime. Bit of a bump. Um, so that kind of helped with the bump. Um, but one thing that we did uniquely too, that uh, I would implore other race directors to do is on our signup form, we yeah. added a question that said, hey, is this your first time ever doing an adventure race? Because we wanted to get a sense of, am I just getting the diehards or is this new people trying it out? And what was crazy was that first year, I think 60%, of the people, this was their first time doing an adventure race, gotcha. which helped, it helped me as a race director. I actually did a longer briefing. We did an online zoom briefing, like two days before the race. And I made it longer. Cause I was like, okay, a lot of these people got to know what they're doing. Like, what are they getting into? So I kind of covered a little bit more logistics of just like how an adventure race works. So that sort of thing has been super helpful. Uh, we've, we've kept that question on all of our races now. Cause now we get an idea of like, how many of these people are coming in for the first time. Yeah, we had a,
1: um, I, I, I was asked to um, be, to to direct with, her it was just with the direction of a race this past Saturday. Roughly 32 people in the field. We did a NAV clinic an hour before the race. Over half the racers came to the NAV clinic, right? Yeah. And so clearly, because because to your point, you, adventure racing is a funny sport and the idea that like you, you, it's different from other sports, the idea like you have to figure it out on your own, right? That's part of the core of adventure racing. Like we're going to throw things at you, it's your job to figure it out. But if you don't take care of the beginner, the gap between their skill set and figuring it out is so wide that they just have a miserable time.
0: Yeah, exactly. And there's things I covered in that briefing that I think if I covered during a 12 or 24 hour is people would be throwing stuff at me, right? Gotcha. <laughs> stuff, that, stuff that's a given for adventure racers, but if you've never done it before, like one of the things we did is, so we connected Silver Lake park and then there was like a three mile trail that connected to another park. And we, we figured out how to make them go from one to the other, but it required, there was a four lane highway as part of that transition. And we basically said, look, you need to go under the bridge or you need to go to this crosswalk. And I like I literally showed them the race like a little segment of the race map. And I was like, look, this is what it's going to look like when you get to this spot. Right. And I basically said, you do not go on this road because basically the local police said like no racers could be on the road. Yeah. But also from a safety standpoint, I didn't want them there. But like that's kind of,
1: kind of thing that you don't really cover at, you know, at a high level, yeah. more expert it, level it, it, race. In a race with more experienced racers. You get the maps and there's a big red mark on here. Do not go on there. Yeah. Right? And exactly. then you, and then racers know not to do that. And and if there's live tracking, cause like you mentioned, Mark and Margo Harris, they just did the tracking for the endless mountains through enabled tracking. And what a, what a great, the ability to dot watch is, has been a real growth point in the yes. sport. Um, and it's easy to see if you're dot watching if someone's on an illegal road, there was a, a team that I won't identify from the longest day race that we were dot watching from race headquarters. And we were like, they're getting close. They're getting close. They're getting close. And they ended up staying high enough on the contour that they avoided the out of bounds area, but we were like, Oh, you could see that from the, from yeah. the tracker. You, um, it, we, we did. Yeah. We did live
0: tracking for our 10 hour race this year with spring bloom. I tell you, it did two things for me. One, it gave me so much more confidence, like from a safety standpoint, yeah. I know where the racers are. There's private property, you know, around and I'm like, Oh gosh, I really mm-hmm. hope nobody's getting the private property, but it's much better when you're tracking and you kind of tell. I also had uh, one or two racers this year, uh, called me from the course and they were basically like, Hey, I'm not hurt, but we're pretty certain that checkpoint blah, blah, blah is missing. Right. And I, I pulled up the live tracker and I said, look, I'm not going to tell you where you're wrong, but you're not in the right spot. Like (laughs) they were, they were, they were way off in the wrong place. And I was like, look, I'm not telling you where it is, but I promise you other people have gotten the checkpoint you're looking for. It's (laughs) not missing. You're missing. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so, your job it, is to figure it out. Good luck. Yeah. You hang up on them. Yeah, exactly. They, they were very good sports about it, but it helped me because like if I didn't know where they were, who knows? I might have had to send somebody out on the course, check and see if that flag is there. Right. I wouldn't know until the race is over if that's right. the situation.
1: Right. Because so, yeah, we, we do know I, as I'm a director, a big, the most the most clutching feeling in your chest is when you start you think a checkpoint's in the wrong place. And you're yeah. like, oh, because that's like a big thing for us, right? We want to get that right. And if it's wrong, you're like, oh, oh, no. Um, so to your point, the the tracker vindicated you, right? It showed that you were yeah. doing the right thing.
0: Yeah. The other thing I would say, too, um, and, and um, I mean, I guess we're plugging Mark and Marco here. Sure. Which I and they deserve it right, they do, do a great product. It, they deserve it. Um, I learn a lot. I, I probably learn more about adventure racing by being a race director than I do from being a racer. Right. Uh, one of the things you learn a lot of, especially when you have the live tracking, is – not everybody approached that checkpoint the way you thought they would right and that's probably one of the biggest things one of one of my favorite stories from spring bloom the 10 hour this year is we uh we ended the race with basically a kind of like a horseshoe shaped uh orienteering it was a row game and there were basically high points and there were low points and the expectation we had was that everybody would kind of make a u-shape and do the low points and then they would do another u-shape and do the high points to get back and that's basically how i was setting the checkpoints and there was one racer uh phil dawson who did the race. He went in a zigzag pattern he was getting both the top and the bottoms on the way out. And we're like, well, how's he, how's he planning on getting back? And then all of a sudden the tracker is in the water and we're like, there's no way it was like a quarter mile inlet. And sure enough, Phil jumped in the water and swam
1: the gap. He's and we gonna, we're just
0: like, it just, it didn't occur to us that anybody yeah. would try to do that. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. And that's the, and that's the the part of adventure racing. I always tell people when we talk about adventure racing and, and other endurance sports, if you adventure race enough, it ruins you for traditional endurance sports because they tell you where to go. Yeah. right. You run a marathon now and it's like, okay, I mean, marathoning, good sport, honorable, hard, but there, there are turn markers. And all of a sudden, what traditionally had been competitive activities become long training days for adventure racing, right? And to your point about Phil Dawson, you had somebody who looked at the map and used his ingenuity to figure out a strategy that is a race director you may not previously have thought of. And I agree with you. When you look at the trackers and the team takes a unique strategy, it's kind of like, hmm, let's see how that works out for them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was
0: glued to the screen during Endless, you know, watching all the team's tracks and like seeing all the different approach points. And the crazy thing sometimes is like how much energy gets wasted. It's not even necessarily navigationally. It's just like, yeah, you might have gone in a straight line, but how much energy did it take? You know, uh, my one of my regular teammates, Dave Dowling, uh, he's more of a straight line guy. And Mm -hmm. I'm more of a let's take this trail because that will be less effort. Right. You know, right. and we're, we're a good balance between the two of us. But it's always funny because he's like, well, we got here quicker. I'm like, yeah, but my legs are killing me.
1: Well, that's the <laughs> I always joke that there's different personality types in adventure racing. And there's the engineers on one side and engineers are designed for efficiency. And their job is to get the next job done and they will go straight over and throw whatever's in front of them. And the liberal arts guys are the guys like, well, let's figure this out a little bit. And they'll take a more roundabout route and get in the same place. And then how do you, what's the benefit there, right? Do you go up and over it or do you walk around it? That's very often. Yeah. That comes up from time to time. And as a race director, you probably see the full the full range of choice that people make during races. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing I, I often
0: tell racers too is I'm like, think like you're a race director when you're on the course. Like if you know the personality of your race director, you have a pretty good idea of how they set flags. And that's pretty important thing to know because like I think a lot of people know me. Personally, like from doing the races, like I don't like to put myself through torture to go set a flag. So I'm right. not gonna put you through torture to find it. Like keep in mind I gotta go set that flag right. and I've gotta go pick it up. Right. right. So, now you <laughs> do know keep are, that in mind.
1: You do know that but there are race directors out there that take the exact opposite approach. But
0: but that's my point. It's no right. it's not no, not think like a race director, it's think like your race director. Exactly. Right. Because there are some race directors who do that. I mean, I've done races, you know, like I did the Swamp Fox earlier last year. Mm-hmm. He put some of his checkpoints in the middle of a swamp literally in black water you know Like, but that's part of the what's going with that race you have an idea of
1: how your race director is setting it yeah there was a there was a race uh, on naira new york adventure racing association did the, the longest did the jersey inferno a few years ago and it was in western jersey and literally there was a checkpoint in the middle of a swamp that you were up to your neck in this brackish water going out to get it. And it was yeah. miserable and terrible. And some teams got out of it because a bear decided to pay a visit and destroyed the checkpoint. So that <laughs> checkpoint got pulled off. Of so there were those of us that got soaking wet and those of us that got spared by the bear. Um, yeah. and so you're right about that. So, so as you, as you've grown into adventure racing and you've grown, you've gone through directing the the, the broad run off road. And as you've moved into adventure racing, What do you find as like the, the people that succeed, the people that have a good time, what character traits do they bring to the event? And the other side of the question is who just falls apart? Who just doesn't have fun out there?
0: Yeah, I think, um, It's really about people's approach to failure, I think is, I think almost everybody would tell you, uh, you are going to bobble, right? You're in navigationally, especially you're going to bobble. It's not going to go correctly. And I think the biggest, the biggest thing people think is that they've been doing five Ks, 10 Ks, marathons, ultra marathons, all those things. And in all of those races, they started at a start line and they got to the finish line and adventure racing is kind of unique in that most races have optional checkpoints right there's clearing the course and there's finishing the race right there's there's two different things there and i think a lot of people think it's failure to not clear a course right. i've i've podiumed an event without clearing the course. And I think a lot of people don't realize that sometimes that is a tactical thing about a race. There are some races I've done where they have on purpose set too many checkpoints. And that's part of the game, is trying to figure out what is the most efficient way you can collect as many as you
1: can. Gotcha, and And when you make a decision to pull yourself off the course. Exactly. Right. We've gotten this far and now we have to make a decision to go back. And so and that came up the other day during the the race directing for the race, of the wilds, which was in Curwinsville Lake, Pennsylvania. We, mm-hmm. we told the, the beginners, you know, this this is this is a very ambitious course. There's a lot out there. We don't think anybody will clear it. And at the 30 checkpoints, the most anybody got was 26. But we told them that that's not a failure.
0: Right. And that's what I tell people too. There's also, there is something very unique to adventure racing, um, that I don't really see in a lot of other events. And this is from participating in them too, which is dealing with adversity and staying in the race. Um, I, I use a really good example. Uh, we did, uh, break the habit last year. And at like three in the morning, I ripped the derailleur off my bike. We were taking okay. a, okay. we were taking a trail and it just came clean yep. off the bike, just sheared it completely off. And one of the teammates we had, he said, well, we're done. And we're like, what are you talking about? Right. We're no like, we, can convert, we can convert this into a single speed. Right. <laughs> Right. And You're like those, those sorts of things. Like, you know, you, there are people who do triathlons and stuff and you get a flat tire and they're like, I'm done with this race. Right. you know. Right. And it's like, cause, cause you didn't get the perfect PR result that you were expecting. Mm-hmm. Whereas mm-hmm. with adventure racing, it's more about dealing with the different things. Oh, you've got a teammate who needs you to carry their pack or you need to take a break that you weren't expecting. Oh my gosh. Shenandoah epic this year. I mean, that was basically the story of the race was heat exhaustion. Yep. Um, yep. You know, and it was like that race did not go according to anyone's plans because it was about 10 to 15 degrees hotter than I
1: think we all thought it was going to be. Right. Which was a great we were both there, you and I, and it was a great yeah. race. And we had a big, long trek on the Massanutten Ridge. Right. And then we dropped down to the river and then we had a long paddle in the sun. And yeah. then all of a sudden it was time to get on your bike and climb over the gap. Yeah. And it just clobbered people. Yeah. And
0: I mean, we were one of them in that race. I mean, we the funny thing about that race, too, is like you you recognize like other people are going. You don't recognize it until you see it. Maybe that other people are going through what you did. So when we came off the water in the Shenandoah epic, I think we were in like the top 25 or something like that. We didn't know this at the time. I know it now because I went back and looked at the tracking Um, when we hit the climb on the bikes, which let's be honest, it was a hike a bike. It wasn't really so much a bike. Yeah, right. Mark, that comments for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And when I
1: saw that map, I knew we'd be walking with the bikes for quite yeah. a while.
0: No, I, I, the funny thing is, I joked with Mark because it said like, I think it said like 5% hike a bike or something like that on his, his guide that he gave out boy And he's like, well, by distance, it was. Right. <laughs> it's like, so funny. It was just straight up. But, But the funny thing was, is um, I was actually the member of the team who was having the most issues with the heat exhaustion on going up the Mastodon Ridge. And we still managed to pass two teams while we were doing that. But I think the real moment was when we got to the top of the ridge I think there were 30 teams up yeah. there that yeah. were you, laying on the ground. You and I were there and together. Taking, yeah, yeah. We, were taking, we were all taking like half hour rest. And all of a sudden you have a moment of mentally, I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm so out of shape. I'm, I'm hurting the team, like all these different things. And then we get to the top of the ridge and I go, actually, it's every team. It's yeah. not
1: just me. Yeah. <laughs> and you feel like when you're doing a climb like that, you feel like you're in last place. Right, yeah, You feel like exactly. the race is over, we're terrible, we're horrible, and your, your brain is, is, is chewing at you, it's chirping. You get to the top because you and I were there together, and it was like a yeah. convention. Yeah, right? Because we were allowed, and this was to Mark's credit, we were allowed to wait there while one teammate ran to get the checkpoint because he knew it yeah. was going to be kind of rough on us. Um, mm-hmm. And, of course, it didn't get any easier because when you went on the other side of the ridge, it was unrideable on the way down. And yeah. I tend to believe that nothing, the only thing worse than carrying your bike up a hill is carrying your bike down a hill. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and the funny thing about our
0: group is that we're, I don't want to say we're primarily mountain bikers, but we're pretty heavy on mountain biking as our recreational activity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there was one particular member of our team, um, Maria Logan, who's kind of like a local legend mountain biker. She's just doing like all the kinds of different races. And she's up in Pennsylvania too, doing all kinds of enduro mountain bike races. And she had a look on her face where she was just like dagger eyed at us. And she's like, you told me there would be mountain biking.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it's it's like they say in England is this, there's a group in England called the rough stuff, the rough stuff collective. It's, it's great. And David, a a t-shirt. It's always a good day to take your bike for a walk. Yeah. And that's what, (laughs) and that's what that was. And then if you remember, we came over the other side of that, that hill, we got down to TA3 and it was like a field hospital. I mean, there were people just all over the place, drinking water, hanging out and to, to Mark and Margot's credit. They knew what was coming and they were just overflowing with food and drink and water and replenishment. So thank you race directors out there for knowing we got to carry our own stuff. But when the weather conditions change, they take that into account for the racers. They helped a lot of people by being having Mm -hmm. such foresight.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I'll I'll talk about the racing directing side in a second. Here's what I would say kind of on the topic where we were, where the strategy comes in, is this is the one stroke of genius we had in that race, which is we actually went into that course knowing that we weren't going to clear uh, leg four. We were already planning on right. cutting a bunch of it anyway. Was as the it we're we're not Jesse Spangler, right? We know that already. Um, right. so, but we knew we could get the get like three or four of them. But what we did is kind of after after the medical ward up on top of Mass and and everything, mm-hmm. when we got to the bottom, we within two seconds looked at each other and we said, Let's get the one required and let's get the heck out yeah. of here.
1: Yeah, number four. And yeah.
0: and and we were the first team that did it. And what was hilarious is if you go back and look at the trackers for Epic, you see us leave and you see a bunch of teams like walking past us, do a U-turn and go back to their bikes and like, wait, that's a great idea. Let's go do that too. Right. Yeah. And it was funny. We actually let everybody out and we were the first ones through Mudhole Gap and coming on the way back, we ended up getting caught up by, uh, Jesse ended up catching us. We got into leg, was it leg six, seven? We got to that TA with Jesse and he, he knew we had to shortcut the course and we were chatting with him and everything. But it was funny because that was the point where we ended up uh, calling it quits early um, as a team. And this is again, something that's a little bit unique about adventure racing is that we had gotten all the required points. And I, my team tells me I was in bad shape. I thought I could keep going, but they were like, we, we should probably stop like this just isn't going to get any better. Um, And I was like, all right, it's a team decision. Let's do that. But we officially finished, you know, we still got all the points. Had we, had we continued walking and we cleared that, you know, we had so much time. Um, had we continued clearing, we probably would have ended up, you know, in like the top 15 or something like that. Right. And we just right. completely cut out leg four and did the rest of that. But that's something that's unique. And that's what I always tell people is that like, look, just because you're missing points doesn't mean you're losing the race. Like you right. don't know what's going on. That's, that's the other thing that's truly unique to adventure racing is you really
1: have no idea who's right. winning. Yeah. You never stop racing. Right. Always. Yeah. I mean, you have no idea very often races will come on the dark zone and they'll talk about how they, they thought they were counted out. They thought it was over that they had no place to go. Then all of a sudden they get, they, they get to the finish line and all of a sudden they're finding that they did much better than they thought, which is the, you have to keep, you never stop racing. And that, and very often yeah. people will get in their heads. Now, if it's a medical issue and if you're not well, that's a different story. But just because you think you're getting clobbered is not the way to go. It is interesting though, to see people who live in the endurance world, that that, that, that blows their mind and they can't and they don't keep racing because they can't deal with that. The fact that it throws them off that there's just I don't know, there's no scoreboard during the race. They don't know where they are. Exactly. And, and the, you
0: know, again, just another quick antidote is in the 10 hour spring bloom we did this year, Matt Wilson, I think everybody in in this region knows Matt, he does tons Mm -hmm. of races. He was doing Mm -hmm. it solo. And there were basically three top, top entrance. I don't know how you say it, but it was was Goals ARA with Glenn Lewis uh, and Kevin McIntyre. Then it was Matt and uh, one or two other solo males who were out there. And Matt knew he came at the end of the the, you know, I talked about that Rogaine at the end, he came into that Rogaine. He knew he was in third and he knew he was in third by like a good 20 or 30 minutes. And he's like, you know, he's like, I know you can't tell me, but how far behind him am I? And we're like, we can't tell you, but go, you know, so he goes out there and he, he hauls. And I didn't know too much of the conversations that were happening at TA, but he came into the finish line sprinting and he goes how much did he beat me by and I was like Matt I have no idea who you're talking about because no one else has come in yet right and right. He's like, what he's like what are you talking about and I was like well I've, I've been watching the tracker and there's like three of you out there and one of them struggled you know on a right. couple of the checkpoints but you guys went in a different direction to go get him and he ended up winning solo mail by a good 30 or 40 minutes yeah. and you're he like, went into thinking, that- thinking he
1: finished second right and th- and thinking he was going into that not knowing where he was and he could have easily have self-talked himself out of going, but he kept going hard. And Matt is a he was a navigator once. That's his team name. Yeah. He he did a great job. That, and that's and that's part of adventure racing is, is don't stop, don't quit racing before the race is done with you. Right? Yeah. That's the most important thing. So so you have an interesting dynamic that you're you're simultaneously someone who's newer to the sport, not new, newer to the sport and you're also directing races. So I think you bring an interesting perspective that you still have the if if you can the beginner's mindset to a race. And not that you're a beginner, but you're there's some race directors racing for 20 years, they forget what it's like to be new. It sounds like you haven't done that.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the things is that like and we won't get into this, but my my professional experience is actually in the music business. I was in a band uh, okay. after college, I worked for an orchestra, event production and logistics is something that like I have right already. And then I got introduced to adventure racing and trail racing for what it's worth. Like those came secondary. So it's like, I took my already event built event skills and built them into this. Whereas I do feel like a lot of races that I've done, they're adventure racers and they're trying to figure out how to be a race director. Whereas like I've, I've already done, I've put on events that have like 10,000 people for like big user conferences and stuff like that. So like, I think about a lot of those small details and I think you know, at the end of the day, the most important component of adventure racing is the racers. And I think some, and again, I'm not calling out anyone specifically, but I think some race directors might forget that sometimes. They're really concerned with their course. You know, you can create courses all day. You can you know, but if no one shows up, then there's no race. There's no sustainability. There's no growth. You know, for that reason, I think it's really important to take stock in what the majority of the participants and your potential
1: participants, what's their end to end experience, right? So, so let me just start the- that a little bit. So to, for that, cause that's a good point that you make there, that sometimes a race director gets so caught up in the beauty of the course that they leave everything else out. Are you talking about the course being too hard for the racer Or are you talking about everything that surrounds the course, the setup, the logistics, the support being off? Like, how do you how do you see that? I I mean, I'm I'm honestly talking about all of it
0: um, because I think there' a lot of it with with the course design. Know your audience. Right. Like, yes, I could make my courses harder but i don't want to if i've got a lot of beginner adventure racers right you know you got to kind of balance that but then there are a lot of small things i do i, I do think that some race directors forget that Things that they enjoy, not everybody else might enjoy. And one of the ones that I see a lot in adventure racing is let's keep everything a secret until race day or race weekend. And there are some details that need to be gotten out for people to have a good experience. Um, I I won't name names, but I did a race uh, last year where they literally told us nothing until two days before the race. They said, hey, show up at this time. We're going to do a briefing. There's going to be a bike drop. You're going to drop your bikes off the day before the race. The end. And so I replied back. I'm like, Hey, is the bike drop going to be manned? We're dropping off our bikes overnight. Like, is someone going to be there? And the reply I got back was you'll find out when you show up. And I was like that. So my teammate and I called each other and we're like, look, we both have some pretty decent, decently nice mountain bikes. And we're like, I don't feel sick. I don't feel safe. Like I don't feel like I want to put my bike in a place where I like, I don't even know if someone's going to man it. Is it a public area? You know, um, so we both ended up taking like our older hardtails to the race and we get there and, you know, we've, then he, then you add to it. It's like, oh, here's UTM points to, you got to now plot where you're dropping your bike off. And it's like, okay, I get it. That's a little bit of game theory there because he's trying to figure out if his racers can actually plot points. Right. So that, that part I get, but how hard would it have been to just tell us? Yeah, it's going to be manned. It's going to be a secure location where you're dropping your bikes. Because for yeah. us, you know, it's, do we really gain anything from that? You know, did we gain anything by that? Or there are some people who are like, I won't even tell you where the race is starting. And my counter to that is actually Shenandoah Epic is a really good example of that. Mark gives you a 15 page guide to the race with the number of legs, what legs are going to be there estimated distances for them. And do you think anybody's cheating ahead on Mark's course? It's still, he gives you all that information and there's still only two or three people clearing the course and everybody's enjoying it. There's There's a difference between surprising someone with a map with the checkpoints and surprising people with details that they really kind of need, like what gear is required. I've had races that have sprung mandatory gear on us on race day and it's like well you'd never told us that and they're like well that's the sort of you just got to expect the unexpected and i'm like there's a difference between yeah, expect the yeah. unexpected and
1: yeah. here's kind of the stuff you need to know yeah there's a fine line between being adventuring and being um and and lacking thought for your racer right so i think so to your point like it it wouldn't have it, it, it's, it, uh, Secu- telling, the, telling the racer that their gear will be secure overnight is a, is a, is a valid point for a director to make, right? Um, I did a yeah. race one time, which I thought was great. We, we did a, one of the longest day races for Naira. It was an 11 o'clock start on a Friday night. Like, holy cow, like, is there a possibly a worse time to start an 18-hour race? And they basically, we, we gave them our bikes, back of a panel truck. They put us on a bus. They drove us through the night. They pulled up to an empty field somewhere. Got us off the bus, handed us maps, and drove away. And but, we just he, and, yeah, and, and on yeah. the map, but had to start finish on the map. But like, then you all of a sudden you had to like figure it out from there. That's a legitimate, it, that's a legitimately exciting way to start a race, right? And yeah. that's kind of figure it out. It's but to your point, it's not like they said to us. Oh, by the way, you need a pack raft the day we showed up at the race. Right. Those exactly, and, and that's kind of more, it's more things like that.
0: Like again, I don't mind not knowing the start of the location, but like you should let me know a couple of weeks ahead. Where are we going? Right, where can I get right. the nearest hotel? Yeah, that's, you know, that's stuff planning, like that. Right. Yeah, that's, you know, just, that's, that's, that's 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 the customer that's,
1: service. That's the right.
0: customer service. And what I would say is like race directors need to earn trust. There are some right. who have it in spades. You know, like Abby, Abby and Brant have it in spades. I mean, they've been putting on excellent races for some Mm -hmm. time but like if your racers are constantly hit with surprises and more specifically like accuracy issues logistical problems safety concerns Stuff that just like really negatively affects their experience, not only are they likely not to come back, they're likely to tell people about it. And if they have a good, conversely, if they have a good experience, they're likely to come back and tell people to come join them. And I feel like adventure racing involves making choices with limited information, navigating the unknown, information gaps, problem solving, educated guesses. finding and registering for
1: an event should not, should not take be the hardest things. part. Yeah. You're right. <laughs> yeah. You're right. Yeah. And I, and I think you're right. And I think that the, as adventure racing continues to grow as a, as an activity, as a sport, we want to be careful because we're not triathlon. Right. So right. there's a point behind that. And this is a, an existential question for adventure racing that, you know, you in many ways we're building a better mousetrap, right. We can go in circles here, but if you go back to the earliest days of event racing and you read about it, those early days, they were full blown, like, here's a map, here's a point X far away, good luck getting there. And over yeah. time, as we sort of, as we grow as a sport, there's definitely are changes that can be made to bring people into the sport we want to have, but we have to be careful that we don't, we don't become triathlon light. And I think yeah. that's the, that, that's the question that a lot of race directors are, are managing as they grow the sport.
0: Well, and that's why we kind of, you know, I took the direction I did with Broadway Offroad and our races. We started with a four hour and we really, I'd be honest, we baby people into that first race. And as we have done races, we have introduced new things to them. I'm like, okay, here's a new aspect you might not have dealt with. Like one of the things we did at Spring Bloom this year in the 10 hour is halfway through the race, they got a second map. You know, right. so it was like, okay, that happens in races. Sometimes you've got to learn the plan and navigate on the fly. You know, next year we're thinking about maybe putting some triangulation in the races or something like that, you know, just right. throwing some things in and not dumping it all on them. Because what was the interesting thing is we never had an intention of doing 10 hour races. We thought we were going to stick with fours and fives. But after we did the first year of races, I had a couple of them, uh, or quite a few people come up to me and say, Hey, I'm, I'm ready to graduate, but I don't know that I'm ready to do 24 hours yet. Right. So that's when we said, let's find a way we can do a 10 hour, you know, let's, let's get them on a full day. And then, you know, next year, we're already thinking about doing a 12, maybe a 15, but stuff to like slowly graduate those people up. Because not, I know some people and, and God bless them, they're, they're willing to jump right into an expedition race. Right. Not everybody
1: is ready for that. Yeah. There was so um, many endless mountains. It was their second, there was their second race ever. It was an expedition race. Five days. Yeah.
0: And I, I believe it was a, uh, Nader did nationals and he had never paddled a boat before. And I'm like, yeah. oh my God, I couldn't even, I can't process the, yeah. the, the bravery, his, bravery that goes into his that. His
1: episode, his dark zone episode for listeners out there is one of our more popular episodes. And he was early. He was, he was like yeah. within the first five or 10 episodes. And Wheelo <laughs> just talks about, he just, he just went for it. And I, and I do yeah. think too, I, I, I recognize your approach, Alan, completely makes sense, right? You're, it's an incremental growth into the sport and you layer challenge on top of challenge. And over time, people build a skill set completely valid way to approach it. But there's a part of us that just loves the fact that like, oh, you've never done this before. Here's a 30 hour race. Here's you and your teammates. Yeah. Don't go off by yourself. And we enjoy watching them try to figure it out because there's, to be said, a lot of guests on the dark zone talk about that, how they jumped into the deep end of the pool and they had a miserably wonderful experience along the way. They got kind of clobbered and on the way home, they're in the car looking for the next race, right? So there's there's two sides of that coin. Which which are both equally respectable, yeah. but there's definitely two ways of looking at it. Well, and it's so funny too because I
0: this is probably one of the most unique stories we we've had or one of the, I've heard of inventories. So spring bloom this year, we had three teams sign up or got signed up. It, it was one person who signed all of them up, and then she starts sending me emails and she's like, "Can you tell me what a gear bin is?" because I see it on your list. So I'm like, okay, uh, you guys are signed up for the 10 hour. Uh, Let me take you through. And like, she just kept sending me question after question. So finally, I was like, what, what is going on here? Can you tell me? And she said, it's a group of guys and they all know like this one central guy. And every year they get together for kind of like a guy's retreat. And the way it works is somebody, somebody in the group picks a thing, but nobody knows about it. So like last year they- Last year they all showed up and they did a Spartan race like without knowing it. So this year, this group of 10 to 11 guys did our 10-hour adventure race and they they not only was it their first race, they didn't know they were what an adventure race was until like 24 hours before the race started. That's kind of like their thing and they had a blast. They They were one of the funnest groups we had out there. They obviously didn't clear the course. It was also interesting because like this poor girl had to coordinate renting like 11 bikes for all of these people because they couldn't know that they were doing it. And and it was just so interesting. But
1: to your point, their attitude, right? They're like, listen, we are completely overmatched here. We have no idea what we're doing. This is going to be a glorious train wreck. Let's just go for it just embrace it. Right. Right. I mean, and that, and again, that's what
0: I always tell people too. Cause like the, I think the, probably the two biggest fears I think people have when, when I talk to beginners is flipping a boat and crashing a bike. Right. Those are like the two biggest ones. And the first thing I tell people is I flipped the boat in an adventure race. And you know what we did? We kept going, we just flipped the boat back over. We got the water out of it and we kept going, you know? Um, I mean, there's more to that story than that, but I mean, like also at spring bloom this year, we had three different teams flip their right. boat on a flat water lake. Right. right. I mean, like it's going to happen. You don't have to be going through rapids like, so, you know, but I think the again, kind of going back to like what I said about the derailleur, like adventure racing is like, just deal with it. Like, yeah, you right? just it keep going, right. you'll figure it out and you'll keep going. And I think that's, that's the first thing that people learn with adventure racing is like the first time you see someone walk through a Creek instead of finding the bridge to get right. over it. Right. And you're like, Oh wait, I can do that. And yeah. as soon as that clicks in their head, they become a different person with adventure racing because now it becomes,
1: how fast can I go? What's the ways I can find, you know, all that kind of stuff. I saw that at at, at, at Naira's The Trilogy. I was on the course. I was watching the the racers. And the team that won the race, we came to a a creek crossing. They just walked right into the water. They didn't even pretend... Um, Jeff Woods walked right across, brought his bike, put his bike down, went back, got his teammate's bike, walked it across, got his, walked it across. They punched and they kept going. There was no dancing around, and in transitions, they were like that. Went to their cars, got their yeah. gear, went, got back, and they ended up winning the race because they do that. So to your point, you know, you, people grow into the sport over time. That's what happens.
0: Well, and what I would tell people too, and you, you've touched on this. I've I've listened to past episodes where, um, if people ask me what's my most memorable race, it's usually the ones that have gone wrong. Right. Right. And like, those are the ones I love talking about. Like I did an eight hour race with my brother. Um, and I, I grew up in in New Orleans. I live in Virginia now, and my family's still down there, but that is to say he experiences no elevation. Right. Right. So he's like, I'm going to come do this race with you. And he's like, never mountain biked before, but he was like, he goes out and hunting in the woods and all this stuff and he's a really good navigator because he has to do that or so he said we ended up getting lost for like two hours in an eight-hour race Right, that's, <laughs> like, that's a, a of it's, like, it's it's one of the craziest stories i tell people and i'm just like and i looked at it on the map after but i'm like it's one of the like craziest stories because then i also had to like he he was dying by like i say four or five hours in, like it became a story, it became a story of, instead of competing, it was like me trying to get him back right. and across there, the course and the all way. of Yeah. And all that stuff. That's a story I love telling or at break the habit, like, you know, the derailleur breaking, but also in that same race, we got lost for like an hour looking for one checkpoint, you know, and stuff like that. I remember that. Uh, mm. Like there are some races where I, I have podium, you know, and I'm just like, yeah, I remember that race, but I don't, remember significant things like it's those it's the things that are out of the norm out of the
1: expected that end up being the good stories and the things you remember right and i think that's the point to make to to new racers out there is that part of the fabric of adventure racing is the is the the unintentional and the intentional adversity that comes our way and things necessarily when they don't go smoothly it's a chance for the team to pull together the chance for the team to grow the chance for the team to, to overcome those challenges um you know one thing that you were very good at Is reminding me that the 24s, the 36s, the five-day races, the epic-y, big, long races are great. But there are people that are coming into the sport that really shouldn't necessarily be starting there. And your races are very popular. I think the, have you been, like, your spring bloom, we have a sellout?
0: Yeah. So we, we've done three adventure races. We've had three sellouts. Uh, okay. We did a spring and a fall last year. We had a spring this year. And the funny thing is we've actually increased the capacity. So every time we've done it, because we found people who have more boats for our rest. So, so who's, your primary, to rent. who's your
1: primary audience? Is it people who are looking for a new challenge? Do they like the fact that it's, it's achievable? Like, Those are pretty impressive numbers for for a beginning race series, if you will.
0: Yeah. Well, what was most interesting to us is the first time we did spring bloom, we thought we were going to convert a bunch of our trail racers into trying this. And out of the 200 people we had, I think four of them had raced with us before on the trails. Almost everybody else was organic, people looking for something to do, and a lot of them were newbies. What's interesting now is, especially when we did the spring bloom we just did now, the four hour tended to be the beginners and the 10 hour were some of the more, you know, veteran racers, people who were looking for more of a challenge. I mean, like I said, we had Glenn Lewis from strong machine goals, ARA we had, you know, Matt Wilson, Phil Dawson, we're like all these teams, all these people who have done multitudes of races and they came right. out for a full day race to challenge themselves and go fast. But a lot of our four hour racers, it really spreads the spectrum. Uh, one of the things I, I always tell people is I'm like, it's so easy that kids can do it. And I, I, Really, to put context into that, the first spring bloom we did, we donated the proceeds to a local Boy Scout troop and a Girl Scout troop. Uh, Like we split it half and half to them. The Girl Scout troop who volunteered, like they were at transition force and checking people in. They were like, we want to try this, but we the, their big hangup was mountain biking because a lot of them are young kids. And the parents were like, they're not really ready for mountain biking yet. They were like, can you possibly put on a race without mountain bikes? So we, that's when we got the idea to put on the fall foliage race last year. And we said, okay, no biking, just paddle and track only. And Girl Scout troop 90088 had 10 teams in that race. 10 teams. 10 teams, like 10 individual teams just
1: from them. And it was all parent-kid teams, parent-two kids. How great is that? I mean, that's just fantastic. I mean, kids getting out of the house, having a good time with their parents, having a shared experience, right? Because very often, you know, we we, we grow best shoulder-to-shoulder, not face-to-face. So you gave those Mm -hmm. families a great experience.
0: Yeah, and and what's great about it, too, is it wasn't a one-off thing for them. They then signed up and did Spring Bloom, and they're already signed up for Fall Foliage this coming October. And the the great thing I see about it is it's not just a fun outing for them. I see some hints of competitiveness in them. When they showed up for spring bloom, uh this was their third their third time being out with us. Uh, some of them had their own paddles. And
1: okay. I'm like, ah, they're start they're starting to get the the competitive bug now. Right, right. You know? <laughs> the, the the again those Girl Scout size carbon fiber paddles right? right. Yeah. MRS has seeing a big, <laughs> big run in them, right? Well, so and, yeah. and what's, what's interesting too, is that we do get some of those competitive people, but we
0: also get a lot of the families too. But I also, interestingly, and this is something that I, I have now participated in myself too, is we had like Mike Cheney from adventure enablers team doing it with his son, you know, right. and we have a lot of that going on as well, where it's like some of these guys, they, they love doing it, but the kind of the more freer aspect, because the other thing too, about us is we do put a lot into the event aside from the race. One of our big things is we have a food truck and we have right. music and we've got like all these other things going on. Like we, we really try to take care of our folks, um, you know, with our races. So it clearly like that. has like, a,
1: it has a festival vibe to it. You show up yeah. you take care of your bike. You have, Cause I watched some of the videos you sent and clearly there was a joyous aspect to that. They were people are having a really good time. Absolutely. I think one of the greatest things and Oh my gosh,
0: like Brent and Abby deserve an award for how they did endless this year. But one of the benefits of a smaller race, like a four hour, 10 hour is that everyone tends to be finishing within minutes of each other. Like the four hour, everybody finishes within a half hour of each other from the person who clears it and wins. I think the person who cleared our four hour this year did it in like three hours, 20 minutes or something like that. And then the last team came in at like four. So like everybody's standing there and cheering everybody across the line. Gotcha. Yeah. My gosh, the way, the way Brent and Abby did a linear course with with all of those optional spur offs right. um, was beautiful because it meant that all the teams finished within like eight hours of each other, which yep. is unheard of for an expedition race. Right? I mean, yeah,
1: yeah. Usually, there's a big gap in between, and so it, it worked out really well that the teams finished within a reasonable time frame to each other. It wasn't days and days apart, and nobody came across an empty finish line. It was a really to their credit. And there were teams that had a run to make the finish line. They had a sprint. Yeah, you know, at a, I mean, imagine a hundred and twenty hour race, and you're you're running. Yeah. <laughs> one team actually, when they arrived at Clarion University's campus, the trail came up the back of one of the dormitories where the team stayed. I think they used like their room key or something to get into the building, to run through the building to get out the other side. Like that's, <laughs> that's, amazing. that's that's how close it came for some of these teams. Um so now that you've now that you've clearly successfully dipped your toe into the water and you've you raced yourself and you've built these races and clearly very successful for families and and really a, a positive motivator for the for the community. What growth are you looking for? Do you want to go with an 18 hour or 24? Do you see yourself going bigger, more complex? Like, are you going to go, for example, would you consider talking to an RD for a a much lengthier race, 36 hours and going and spending time Mm -hmm. in their course and getting a sense for how big it is? Like, where do you see Broad Run growing? So I I would love to go in that direction. I will say the biggest thing that holds
0: us back is manpower. Um, We are the tiny, when I say we're a tiny nonprofit, um, Janine, so Janine Prime is like one of, she raced with me in my first race and she's been at all of our races. Uh, She jokes that I, I am broad run off road 90% of the year and then 10% of the year, everybody else chips in, right? right? Like I do all the course design and I do the logistics and I meet with people, you know, and all that kind of stuff to get the permits. But on race day, it's a matter of volunteers. And like one of the biggest problems I have is, and I've talked to some other racers about this is people have asked us like, what about doing a big linear course? And like the problem with a linear course for me is having people to man the linear course. Like I can do some pretty easy out and backs this year with spring bloom was the first time we kind of had it where we had multiple TAs. And that was because my regular teammates, uh, Dave and Brian were actually manning TA. TA2 and I was at TA1 basically with a couple people with me as well. That's kind of like the big thing that limits us. I'll, I'll put the call out here on the podcast. If anybody wants to volunteer and help with us, like we're always welcoming of that. Like we, we'd love to take people. I always tell people too. I'm like, if you know, a nonprofit who could use the money, I'm more than happy to donate to them, um, if they're willing to pitch in a few volunteers, absolutely. Even more so, um, that's always been kind of our biggest holdback. the The good news is we are getting some track and traction, and we are getting some more people here and there. The, to the converse side. Uh, Brian McKendrick, who's been my teammate for tons of races, he actually just moved out to Boston. So I kind of lost a lost a volunteer and a teammate kind of in the process. We'll probably still team up and do races together. But as far as like getting on the help and come help me with logistics and stuff like that, those are the things that, that I would say hold us back from doing, say, like a 24, a 36, anything like that. My ambition is I would love to get to the point where we're putting on something that gets in as a regional qualifier, right? Something to that level. That's what I'd love to do. The The good news is I'm actually actively talking with um, uh, the county uh, that we're doing fall foliage with this year. Um, the the, the not so secret secret is that the, the fall foliage race this year is actually a test run. Um, we're doing a seven hour, three hour at a place called Mott's Run Reservoir. And that's basically the county saying, well, let's not do a big race yet. Let's try to do one of these smaller races. Let's see how it goes. And if that goes good, then let's talk about expansion. And what's cool about that particular part of Fredericksburg, Virginia, is that there is a river right next to it. And I've actually got a course already laid out that would be a pretty solid 13 to 15 hour course. And one of the things, one of the things I'd love to do with that particular course is one of the things I've actually heard from some racers and have seen it on the Facebook groups as well, is there's a lot of people who are saying, I'd really like to get into 24 hour, but night scares the hell out of me. And they've said they've, they've requested, is there a way for it? Cause there's, we do have the Quantico Orienteering Club here, which I highly recommend that people do, but they do one night event every other year, maybe. Um, so a lot of people don't have a chance to try night orienteering. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's hard. Like one of the best quotes ever. Um, I actually went on a a training run, a a training outing, I guess you would say with Mark with me and my teammates did with him. Uh, and one of the things he said with me has always stuck with me is he said, uh, navigating at night is just like navigating during the day. It's just, you have a headlamp on your head. Like, For a lot of people, I think they they feel like nighttime is some crazy thing, you know, like it's just out of this world to to think about that. But like once you do it once, you're like, oh, yeah, it is just the same thing. It's it's got a few few different aspects to it. I mean, there's a few technical things that are different to it, but it's no different than navigating during the day. And if anything, it's cooler at night, you know, which if you're in the summer. works out I think think, think we're socialized
1: to be scared of the dark.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think that's what it is. So long story short is what I'm trying to get done with that county is make it so that that race is going to end in the dark. The idea is to go from like nine in the morning to like 10 at night or something like that, where they'll get like a solid three or four hours in the dark, but they don't have to do the full overnight.
1: You know, that's that's one of the things we're trying to do right now. Right, right, right. I'd be curious as the, you know, one of these things where, you know, if you build it, they will come. And I'm curious when people... People will say to you, if you're building a course, I don't want to race at night. But if you built a course, whether it was racing at night, they're going to make their way there. Like people will make that leap because that's because one thing I think race directors do really well, solid race directors, dedicated race directors, that they build trust in their clientele base. And if you put on a solid four, eight, 12, 13 hour race, if you say, listen, I got a 24 hour course, you're going to get numbers. Because people know the product and this goes for every race director everywhere. That if you have people who are regularly returning to your race to do it again and again and again, you could do a 36 hour race. People are going to sign up. Yeah.
0: Well, what's interesting too is that like for spring bloom this year, we capped it at 250 because the park asked us to. Um, it went so well. Like they saw kind of once they saw the finished product that they already asked us, like, do you want to come back next year? And I was like, Well, the good news is that park is so big I can make another course right out of their park without, you know, and keep things the same. And then I said, okay, well, what's the limit this year? And they said, how about 400? And I was like, all right, let's try it. Let's see how high we can go. So that's one of the things we're going to do. And for any of your listeners, mark your calendar, April 29th, spring bloom will be back at Lake Anna state park. And we're going to see if we can get closer. We've hit 250. Let's see how high we can go. But the plan is to do, that's the plan is to do another four slash 10 at at there. Um, So that'll see. We'll see. I'm kind of, you know, figuring out some final pieces of the course. Maybe it'll be, but it'll be somewhere around there. 10, 11, something like that. But yeah,
1: four hour, 10 hour. So now, so no all great stuff. Don't get me wrong. Love broad run, rah, rah, rah. Bring the sport along. How about <laughs> you? What are your aspirations? You're going to go big? You're going to look at a five day in the face? Maybe 10? <laughs>
0: Uh,
1: <laughs> I, I honestly
0: would like to get there at some point. Our next big thing was we wanted to do nationals. Um, unfortunately, logistically, we have some, you know, personal life things that are making it so that we can't do nationals this year. Right. So for the remainder of this year, we've got a couple of races on our schedule. Uh, I think the next one we're doing is Venture Quest, which I think is a 12-hour here in. Okay. I actually, he's in Maryland. He's in Maryland this year. He's betraying Virginia, after being here for many years. It no, happens. it's funny. He, he's literally like three miles across the state line. Right. <laughs> but we're making fun of it um, but yeah we're doing that one actually the next one on my list is goals is putting on a four-hour race um i think the week after nationals yeah. and i'm planning on doing that one with my three-year-old um i know i don't know if we covered this at all talked about it at all the the most recent race i did was the nanocoke um four-hour in delaware the, uh, by um, and Delmarva, I,
1: right jonathan often yeah, is Delmar, put that on.
0: Yep. Yeah. He put that one on and uh, I did that one with my three-year-old. The funny story was that wasn't the plan. I originally signed up to do it with my, my nine-year-old and my six-year-old and we were going to go do it. And then like, there was a lot of rain and soccer games got rescheduled and all this stuff to eventually to the point where they were both kind of take taken up with our schedules. And I asked my wife, I'm like, do you mind if I take our youngest to go do this race? Um, so I had him on, it's called a shotgun seat on my mountain bike. So he like sits in front of me, he's between my arms. So we did the bike leg like that. you know, I, I did all the paddling in the boat and then he genuinely walked about, you know, 30% of it. And then he was on my shoulders. And the funniest story about it is we ended up winning the
1: division, which
0: I'll I'll you,
1: you beat Glenn Lewis and Noah.
0: Right? I did. I did beat Glenn Lewis and Noah. And the funniest thing about it is I beat them by like two minutes. Right. Um, it was so close and we didn't even realize it because we had to take different different uh, tactics to that race. I I could put my three-year-old on the bike and effectively I'm doing all of the biking. His six-year-old Noah is actually biking. So he couldn't do near as much as the bike as I was getting away with. But what he did is he shortcut the bike course, got back to the paddle where he could do the paddling, and basically had Noah in the front of his boat. So he cleared the paddle course. I only got like two or three from the paddle course, but it evened out that we ended up getting the exact same number of checkpoints, even though we both shorted it. And I beat him by two minutes.
1: Of you running with your son like a suitcase under your arm as you're running down the finish line. You know, you're you're, you're 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 knocking Noah off the bike, and you're sprinting down the finish line, and you're 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 passing by Glenn. You are sound like like the Heisman, right? You're carrying the football.
0: Uh, it was so funny too because like he he genuinely enjoys doing this stuff with me. Like he's always begging me. He's like, "Let's do the bumpy trails." That's what he always tells me when he right. wants to get on the bike. And then he loves going in the kayak. And when we got the the maps that morning, we started with the trek, and it was almost like it disappointed him. He was like, "When could we be done walking?" And I recognizing that he's a three-year-old, I honestly thought we were going to get like an hour in and he was going to want to quit. And that was right. fine. You know, and I kept asking him throughout the day. I was like, hey, do you want to stop? And he would go, no, I want to do the boat. Good.
1: <laughs> there like- you go. I've, heard that. I've heard that Skittles. <laughs> Skittles often as bribes are a very good, strong strategy. And what's nice, though, yeah. is that when I raised Glenn Lewis, he beats me like I'm a three-year-old. So it works out really well. So it's really good. <laughs> yeah. Now the funny story with Glenn was just a couple of
0: weeks earlier, he had done spring bloom and I had put the fast course estimate at like just under nine hours. And he yeah. ended up doing it in like seven and a half. Yeah. One of those so guys. Like, yeah. Of, of course man. he did. <laughs> Good man, Glenn Lewis. Of course he did.
1: He did endless mountains. He looked better at the finish than he did at the start. He's one of those guys. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know that you speaking of family, I know you have a family on the, on the tail end of this day, waiting for you. Any other clothing closing thoughts as you, as you, you think about your, your, your crash course in adventure racing, race directing the process along the way, the growth of the sport, anything that you want to share with that, with our listeners?
0: Yeah. I mean, what I would tell you is if you're, if you're a new person, person getting into it um, there isn't one specific way to get into it um, one thing I have found is people will post on Facebook and they'll say hey I'm trying to get into it what should I do and people throw answers at them just like anything else with on on the internet but people throw answers at them and like just do this just do this. And what I would tell people is like, you can pick your own route, your own entry into it. You can jump into the, you know, into the expedition race. If that's what you want to do, I'm not telling you not to do that, but if you want to take a slower route, you can do that as well. You know, you, you don't have to pick there's not one specific way to get into adventure racing. You know, like there's all kinds of different ways, but what I would tell people is that um, you're never going to be ready. I don't know how to explain that. that's excellent advice. Like, People, people always like, I'm trying to be super prepared. I'm trying, you know, and I think that again, it comes from people who are like, you know, they're used to like the running races and the triathlon races. where like, they know all of the logistics ahead of time, but inherent in adventure racing is that you're never going to have a hundred percent of the information. So much of it is just hindsight. So much of it is just experience, right? Like how to deal with something until you've done it. Like I, I'll be honest with you. We were cocky when we flipped the boat in that race that I referenced. We, it was actually, it was actually epic uh, three years ago. And two of the guys on my team are like experienced kayakers, <laughs> like, right. you know, guys who would do whitewater. And, you know, Mark Harris is like 25% of you are going to flip. And we're like, yeah, that's not a uh,
1: Compton Ge- Rapids.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Gen- yeah. Compton. Yeah. So genuinely to our fault, we, we blew it off. And we, this is again, a mistake we made. We didn't even put dry bags in our backpacks. We were like, what? We're like we don't need to do that. We're not flipping in a Compton. And sure enough, we get to Compton and we flip and it was, it threw us through a loop, but like stuff like that, like, again, until you experience it, you don't really right. know what's going to happen. Right. And I tell people that all the time, I'm like just jump in and go do it. Because at the end of the day, um, nobody's, you know, I always tell people with our races, I'm like, hey, if somebody's hurt on the course, please help them, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Because like at the end of the day, I'm like, I don't pay cash prizes for winning my races. <laughs> you know, I know there are some races who do have prizes, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I think the bigger point is that you're probably trying to get an adventure race because you're looking for a new experience. Right. Worry about the experience,
1: not where you finished. Right. And I find that adventure racers as a breed, I've never felt... I've never been at the finish line of an adventure race and and it's the stories that drive us. Right. And, yeah. and as you and I, you and I were saying in the, in the pre the, the our, our conversation, we started recording in our, our pre uh, pre episode talk that to, to a fault you have to chase adventure racers away from the end of the race. So like you have to literally like the race is over and you do the awards and as you're packing up your stuff, there's still packs of people looking at maps, talking to each other, looking at routes, adventure racing. And, it's the heart and soul of this podcast. It's a story driven sport.
0: Yeah. And what I would tell people too, on the same thing about like, you're never going to be ready. I think training throws a lot of people off too. Um, a lot of people are like, I'm not in shape for that yet. And I'm like, actually you could probably get up and go do an adventure race tomorrow. I don't, I mean, like, I don't think a lot of people realize that like you can walk, You can paddle slowly. You can bike slowly. Like you don't have to be in super ultra marathon or, you know, you're not winning the Olympic shape, right? That's not what we're looking for. Like, I mean, I think we all have stories about the quote unquote old man who's kicking our ass on an orienteering course and we're running and he somehow keeps finding his way to the checkpoints faster because that aspect to it still permeates always. If you navigate better, it doesn't really matter. How fast you are if you run in the wrong direction. Yeah. I'm right?
1: pretty certain the person that won the Race to Wilds five hour race this weekend, getting 26 of 30 checkpoints, was the oldest person on the course. Yeah.
0: Yeah, very, very likely. And I think if you look at like the average age, like when you looked at a world's toughest race, when you look at a lot of these expedition races, the average age of like the top five is in like their 40s. Right. right? I mean, like it's not the young 20 year old who's like super duper fit. So I always tell people that because like they they will they will reach out to me and they'll say, I don't know if I'm ready. I don't know. And I'm like, just sign up. You know, I'm like, just sign up, show up. I'm like, if you have a bad time, come talk to me after, but I really don't think that's going to happen. And every single case they've come to me after and they're like, thank you so much. This was so much fun. And that's what I tell people. I'm like, it's fun. Like that's at the end of the day, it's supposed to be fun. Cause if it wasn't, we wouldn't be doing this right. We're not going to put ourselves through all this punishment, you know? And, and the other thing I tell people is that like, you will see things in an adventure race that you won't normally see. Like, race directors don't hang flags in mundane places because they got to put it somewhere where like they can give you a hint, right? They're trying to give you a checkpoint. Like it's at the high point. It's at something it's at the stream. Like, and most of those places are off the trail and like some of the most beautiful sites I've seen have been darn adventure races. Like, out doing you know, the marshes of South Carolina and ocean paddling, some of the most beautiful stuff for the sunrise, uh, Shenandoah being on top of the Massonaut Ridge and looking out over the ridge. Oh my God. Like some of those things you get to see are amazing. And, um, you know, getting off the trail, this basically does that for you. And I always tell people I'm like, adventure racing is actually a guided tour in disguise. Like the race director is just saying, go see all of these things.
1: Thanks again to Alan of Broad Run Off-Road for coming on the show today. Um, I will put all of his links and all of his contact information in the show notes. Be sure to check out his super popular races uh, for the beginner in your life. Great way to get started. Um, So thanks again, Alan, for coming on board. And thanks again to Rootstock Racing's The Endless Mountains www.EndlessMountainsAR.com for sponsoring this episode of the podcast, A Great 5-Day Race in June of 2023. Hope to see you all there. Uh, In the meanwhile, thanks for being a listener. Uh, Feel free to visit your podcast platform of choice and leave a review. Best way to spread the word about the Dark Zone. And always reach out to me, Brian, at ARDarkZone.com with any ideas or suggestions. Thanks for being a great listener and have a great day safe training.